0: Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Insulin 360 podcast, the podcast that takes a deep dive into metabolic health. I'm your host, Joe, and today we've got a great interview lined up for you. I'll be talking to Dr. Sherry Kohlberg, who is an exercise physiologist based in uh, Virginia in the US. Um, She got her PhD from Cal Berkeley, and she's been studying exercise and diabetes, um, both type one and type two for many, many years. Um, She's got a wealth of personal experience and clinical experience and she uses all of that to create resources and to help people um, integrate exercise into their lives both to improve uh, diabetic management but also metabolic health in general. Um, So she's authored 12 books, um, more than 450 articles. Um, In 2016 she got the AMA Outstanding Educator Award And in 2021, she was named uh, in the top 2% of scientific researchers worldwide. So in this episode, we get into some of the physiological benefits for exercise and why it can be so beneficial to helping people manage their diabetes. We also talk about some of the challenges that diabetics face when starting to exercise, as well as some ways in which that we can integrate exercise into our day-to-day lives and perhaps make it more fun and make it more sustainable. Um, So I found it really interesting because often we tend to forget about exercise. Um, It's something that we should do. We see it as something that is necessary. But because it's perhaps not so novel, um, like searching for a new supplement or herb or drug, then perhaps it gets ignored more than it should do. But as we see in this episode, it has so many broad benefits that it can't be uh, mimicked by any sort of other intervention and so it's really something that we need to uh, pay attention to and to make part of our of our daily routines so um, if you'd like to know more about Dr. Dr. Sherry you can head on over to her um, her personal website sherrycoldberg.com. She's also got another website, DiabetesMotion.com and in both of these websites, she's uh, sharing her research and her expertise and her, the data collected on all sorts of different athletes and how they manage their, um, their diabetes with exercise. Um, if you want to know more about Insulin360, head on over to our website, Insulin360.com. Um, you can sign up for the newsletter, get regular updates or also sign up here on YouTube. And with all of that out of the way, let's get on with the episode. Okay. Hi, Dr. Sherry. Hi, Sherry. Uh, Nice to be with you today. Um, How are you doing today?
1: Just great. I've already done my exercise, so I'm good to go for the rest of the day.
0: Ah, great. Okay. Well, um, yes, I've done a bit of exercise today, but likely not as much as you, I think, even though here it's much later in the day than with you. So, so yeah. Great. Okay. So I'd like to start by asking you, um, uh, how did you get into studying exercise and diabetes? I It,
1: it was definitely for personal reasons. Um, when I was a kid, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So, actually, I was 4 years old. I don't really remember getting diagnosed. I just remember not feeling good. But um when I was a kid, there it was a long time ago. It was before there were blood glucose meters. It was before people had adequate ways of managing diabetes and checking to see where they were and making adjustments on a mealtime basis or whatever. So, I mean, they, they started me out on one shot a day, you know, and I was supposed to eat the same exact diet the same time of day, every day. So it was very regimented because that's the only way they had to do it. And it was just the urine testing for glucose, which was totally ineffective. Didn't tell you anything about like what your glucose actually was at any given time. So I kind of went through my childhood that way, but I had found that when I was physically active, I just felt better. I felt like I was more in control of my diabetes. I didn't have as many symptoms of my as my glucose being high or, and so I just, um, I did a lot of activity as a kid and, and not, not necessarily a, a, things that were organized because my parents were a little afraid to enroll me in, in sports and stuff. I just started doing them on my own anyway. So when I got a little bit older, I was kind of curious about, why that worked so well. And I'm not the only um, person I know with type 1 diabetes who ended up being an exercise physiologist. I think a lot of us had this <laughs> interest in finding out why this works, why it helps. Sure. Um, when I was uh, 13 or 14, I went one summer and stayed part of the summer with my grandmother, and she actually had type two diabetes. And when I was a kid, she was the only person I knew that had diabetes besides me. And it was, it was a different type. Obviously she was overweight and. Um, she was always trying to lose weight. And that summer, I was staying with her for a while. I remember she was on another diet, another weight watchers diet. And for some reason I worked at this deal with her that I would help her lose weight. And I was going to be kind of like her her coach. And for every pound that she lost, she was going to pay me one US dollar, which (laughs) I mean, that was a long time ago, that was actually a lot of money, right. Um, And so I had her weighing out her cottage cheese and getting on the scale every day. And I had her running laps around her backyard. She lived in the Midwest part of uh, in Kansas in the US. And at the end of that first week of her diet, she lost eight pounds, which um, you figured that out in kilograms. Uh, my brain's that that quick, maybe yeah,
0: around maybe about half. And, half I think so,
1: and yeah. so I mean, it's 222.2 pounds per kilogram that I know. So you're um, not quite four kilograms. And it was really funny because um, I mean, she had to pay me $8. That was a lot of money. <laughs> and I guess that was kind of my drive initially that i think well maybe i could do this as a as a living i could help other people um after i left i know she gained all the weight back which is not uncommon and it's also not uncommon to lose a lot of weight the first week because a lot of that's just water weight when you start dieting it's
0: not necessarily
1: a sustainable amount of weight loss it's after the first couple weeks it usually slows down because you're losing fat which is more calorie dense and it just
0: yeah you know. well anyway, what's interesting vitamin- is that uh yeah from that initial stage you you had the um, already the kind of uh scientific outlook to think why is this happening uh why do i feel better when i exercise and then the curiosity to go and explore that and so um yes i think many people they have a situation like that and maybe they just say okay well that's how it is but um it's really interesting to see before you started studying, maybe professionally you already had that drive to, to figure out and to, to help people and to, um, to yes, find out what more about what was going on. So yeah, that's great. To, yeah, I
1: actually wanted to cure diabetes and I found exercises about as close as I can come. I mean, I can't make my own pancreas work again, but what I can do, what other people can do is they can keep their insulin requirements very low. Because of of being physically active, which yeah, in a in a way, in in some people it actually helps reverse insulin resistance. So it it does kind of cure diabetes for people who make their own insulin, and for people who don't make their own insulin, it makes diabetes a lot easier to manage. So sure. I mean, it's as close you can come without you know, actually having a cure. Yeah. Cure.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's an incredible uh, achievement because if we think back to uh, i remember looking in the first episode i was um uh looking at some of the history behind insulin and it was just over 100 years ago where they just discovered um discovered insulin and started using it i think 1922 was when they used it in the first human um the human subject and he went on to live an, an extra 13 years with this um with this treatment and so to think how far we've come is um amazing really
1: I think about that often because in looking at one of my other sons has some of the auto antibodies that are associated with developing type one diabetes. He has not developed it at this point, but they're kind of watching him because he's at high risk for developing it now. But I, I, in going back and looking through the whole family history, who has autoimmune diseases and not just type one diabetes. And I found out that my grandfather's uncle and two of and and that uncle's two children's so my grandfather's cousins all three members of that family died in the nineteen tens from developing wow. type 1 diabetes before there was insulin they were just like a decade too soon but you know one of the sons developed it at eleven and died and then the second son the, the father developed it as well in his thirties right around the same time and then the second son developed him and so one two three and they were all gone and wow. yeah. they actually named my grandfather after that his uncle because he died right before the uh, my grandma grandfather was born um
0: <laughs> so, so um it,
1: it just very traumatic um you can imagine losing your whole family to a disease that there was no no exactly. treatment for let alone a cure
0: sure do you think do, do you think there's a strong genetic element to um, to type 1 then? Or is it like a genetic element that's triggered by some sort of environmental factor that triggers this autoimmunity?
1: I think the science shows pretty clearly now that you need some kind of an environmental trigger. And that trigger may be different for different people. And I know they've done a lot of research into it and haven't come up with a definitive answer, probably because there are so many different things that can contribute in different ways. And... I still think that regardless of the trigger and the treatment, that that adopting the types of lifestyles that you have to do if you want to live long and well with diabetes of any type is actually going to help anyone live longer and live well. So I don't necessarily see it, even though I've had this chronic disease now for almost 55 years, I don't see it as, as an impediment. I've actually seen it as a reason to live my life and be as healthy as I can. and think about trying things that keep my insulin needs low and my my health high and so I mean I, I I actually sort of think it's been an advantage to me i I completely understand the metabolism when it comes to Like, why does my body do something? Sometimes I don't understand it exactly, but I I know what I can do to undo it. And I know what's likely to happen. I've got instantaneous feedback, both in physiological symptoms, but also now being able to check my glucose at any time and see what it is. So, I mean, there are a lot of tools that people have now that, you know, they just didn't back then, Mm. even when insulin was first discovered, so.
0: Yeah, I can completely understand that point of view, in fact after I had, um, <clears throat> problems with my eye, um, I was really driven to, uh, improve my general health. And so I saw a lot of benefits with my eye health, um, but also benefits in other areas of my life. And I often think back to that time thinking, uh, I, I did things to compensate for that. And there was some overcompensation and I'm probably healthier now, uh, most surely healthier now than I would have been if that hadn't, um, have happened. So, um, I definitely think it's um, it's really beneficial to try to pull the the positives out of these situations. And then um, like you like you've been uh, you go on to study uh, in this area to become an expert in uh, human metabolism and then to pass on that knowledge to to other people. It's um, it's a really uh, great process. So, um, yes. So what did you study then?
1: Uh, well, most of my career, I focused on exercise and diabetes, so various types of of diabetes. Some of it was situational, what I had access to at my university. I, I did a lot of collaborations with um, a medical doctor at Eastern Virginia Medical School. And so it's kind of like what he wanted to work on, what facilities we had access to, and so forth. So I did a lot more studies, actually, in type 2. and. Uh, Basically complications and prevention of complications that I did in type 1, I would have liked to do more than that. I just wasn't in a setting to do that. I have done some type 1 studies, but not as many as I would have liked to then. Um, What I've done is, is more colloquial uh, collecting of information about exercising with insulin use. So. And some of the books I've written, I've each one I've interviewed or gotten responses from questionnaires for people with living with insulin use, with diabetes, without insulin use and their regimen changes and the things that they have to do for a variety of activities, because you can find people with with uh, type one diabetes and type two diabetes doing pretty much everything in the world, but it didn't used to be like that. It wasn't like that when I was a kid and it wasn't even like that when I was in my 20s it, it just sort of blossomed in the last couple of decades with all the additional tools that people had to manage glucose so we have professional athletes with diabetes we have amateur athletes we have the everyday person doing recreational stuff and surfers and skiers and you know you name it yeah. <laughs> just great yeah engaging.
0: it's uh, been a really uh, positive movement and i guess it's also been paralleled by a kind of um there's obviously been this huge rise in type two diabetes and metabolic health issues. And at the same time, uh, people's diets perhaps not being, uh, you know, becoming more and more refined and sedentary lifestyles. So there's been this growing pressure from one hand, but on the other hand, there's been this reaction to this pressure to uh, better understand what's going on, to understand what um, what aspects are um, really making the the big effects like with diet and exercise and circadian rhythms and so on um and then to find
1: my secrets that i found out about exercise and (laughs) why it works (laughs) sure
0: yes yes that would be uh i mean you've got the the personal experience and also the the studying so both of them together gives you a kind of unique uh perspective on what 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 you found to work
1: right so um one thing is just to understand that um, the, reason, the reason why exercise can help lower your, your blood glucose mostly is because there are actually two mechanisms by which the the body can take up glucose from your bloodstream and put it into the cells that are sensitive to insulin. So. I, That's basically muscle and fat cells and, and the liver to a certain extent. There are a lot of tissues in your body where you can, you don't need insulin to get glucose in it, like the brain, which is really a good thing because if you didn't have insulin and you needed insulin to get glucose to your brain, you, you wouldn't last very long. So, um, so there's a, a mechanism that's driven by insulin that that get we could get into the pathways if you want to, but I I hesitate to go there. Just it's a, it's a little bit complicated. But um, in the 1990s, they were studying this for the first time. So I was kind of firsthand got to see some of the the research that was coming out that showed that. There was one mechanism that allowed insulin to bind to the receptors the insulin receptors in the cell surface for say let's just pick muscle so we're talking about muscle so the insulin comes along binds to the receptor and it triggers a reaction inside the cell that then transports glucose transporters to the cell surface and allows glucose to enter you know hey sure. so that would be at, um, at rest, um that's the main mechanism we have. It we sure. have insulin. So that would be
0: um, uh, glute four, um right.
1: Glute four, mm-hmm. which
0: we find mostly in the muscle, and then um not all of the glute receptors around the body you say need insulin to to create that well, cascade. Well, there's
1: actually a whole family of glute receptors. There's glute one, there's glute yeah. two, well, you know, there are like six or eight, eight of them. they are a whole bunch, but um sure. But we're mainly talking about the glute four. You're you're correct yeah. about that and so we also learned back in the 90s and early 2000s that uh, when you have exercise you have a a muscle contraction and the, the calcium that's released for the muscle contraction also stimulates an alternate pathway that transports a separate group of glucose transport. is still GLUT4 to the cell surface and allows glucose to come in. So you think okay. of it evolutionary it it makes sense that you can get glucose into active muscles because if you were relying on insulin to do that and you didn't have insulin, you wouldn't be able mm. to move at all. Your muscles yeah. would not not work. you have to get the glucose in as part of the the energy that it can use yeah well it's also
0: a kind of extra layer i guess because if you're running uh hunting or or uh, moving around then that's the moment where you need extra glucose in those muscles so it makes sense to have this extra layer triggered by muscle contractions i mean it's a very elegant system
1: makes perfect sense and they also found out that it's additive so yeah, you know, that's the really good news. Anytime you move your muscles, you actually can potentially pull glucose out of the bloodstream and use it. And Great. the bad thing is if you have too much insulin around, because now you've got both of these mechanisms working, usually the human body will decrease levels of insulin that it's releasing when you're actually exerc- exercising so that you don't have this double whammy of of glucose, uh, insulin induced uh, glucose uptake and contraction induced glucose uptake. But what happens if you, you know, have to inject or inhale or pump insulin, you don't have an easy way to, to turn it off like you do when a, a normal person. Yeah, normal. I, I say I say that like I'm normal. Um, <laughs> and so we have diabetes, yes. okay? Um, sure, yes, yes. And so we have these, uh, you can have, too much insulin circulating in the bloodstream and then that can cause your blood glucose to drop quickly and precipitously and you know you can bottom out during an activity and so that's the downside i mean honestly people without diabetes can get uh really low blood glucose during exercise it's happened to marathoners and other people Mm. that um, it's it's not unheard of to get hypoglycemia even if you don't have diabetes but and also if,
0: uh, for example, if you, if, if somebody drinks alcohol and that triggers the same process, or, or at least with somebody who's producing insulin from their, from their beta cells, um, this, uh, I was hearing this can be dangerous for, for example, um, diabetics who are taking insulin because they might have uh, too much of a release and then yes, hypoglycemia. And, uh, but I didn't realize yeah. it was also with, um, with athletes as well. This could, uh, this yeah. could happen. So, okay.
1: I think the problem with alcohol is more that the alcohol interferes with the liver's normal processes of making new glucose through gluconeogenesis and and so it doesn't necessarily release as much glucose as it would otherwise it's somewhat impaired in its function so the liver is is usually very good at balancing our blood glucose and it gets dual signals, it gets signals from insulin because insulin gets released from the pancreas and the first organ that sees it after it gets released in the portal vein is actually the liver. And then the the pancreas can also release glucagon. That doesn't come from the beta cells, it comes from the alpha cells. And usually it's that level of glucagon and insulin right at the level of the, the liver that tells the liver what to do. If the insulin's high, it stores, if in glucagon's high, it releases, but that's kind of messed up in people who don't make their own insulin and have to replace it because the way that we have to replace insulin, you know, thank goodness we have it, but we cannot replace it in a physiological way. We have to inject it under the skin or inhale it into our lungs or something that's not doesn't put the insulin right in the portal vein where it should be to have the, the optimal effect on the liver that it, it should have and so everybody who has to replace insulin that is a little bit messed up metabolically um mm. it just leads to some additional challenges i didn't I
0: think about already. that before actually yeah so i mean it's not just about the right level um at the right time but also um the fact that um uh, we, we release insulin into the portal vein, and, and then liver gets the first dibs on it. So if you're injecting into your arm or into your systemic circulation, then it's um it's it's just going to different places first. So yeah, yeah I you end up about with that.
1: high peripheral levels and really low levels by the time it circulates back past the liver. And so, I mean, that actually happens. It so a lot of people have elevated levels of glucagon after eating a meal and the glucagon going to tell the liver to release more glucose and you just ate a meal and why would your liver be releasing more glucose you don't need any more then but it it gets triggered because you don't have the right amounts of insulin that are there to help kind of balance that out and keep the the alpha cells from releasing mm-hmm. glucagon.
0: Uh, So I was going to ask, actually, am I right in thinking that there's also like right at the level of the pancreas? There are these feedback mechanisms where insulin will dampen down glucagon and glucagon will um, do the same.
1: So when you have high peripheral levels, it also can somewhat inhibit the release of fat from fat cells that, that provides an alternate fuel source during exercise. And so if your insulin levels are really high, it's kind of like a double whammy. It's causing you to take up more glucose from In addition to what the contractions are causing you to take up and then the insulin itself is kind of inhibiting the release of some of the fat from the fat cells that you would use as an alternate fuel. But, um, so it is a little tricky, but I mean, a lot of people have figured it out. It's just, I've noticed that the people that are really the high level, high functioning athletes with. Type 1 diabetes are people that totally understand metabolism. They understand what their body's doing at any 1 point and what they need to do to fuel it and how much insulin they should try to have on board or not have on board. And, you know, they have again, like all this, like, I have all this instantaneous feedback and so it helps you understand it in a way that you it's hard to if you don't have to live with
0: it <laughs> so. yeah yeah so one of the main uh, mechanisms by which insulin then is going i mean um exercise is going to help the situation hugely is by activating this um, alternate uh, insulin independent pathway to get um, glucose into the cells by these muscle contractions um that is but deep, yes in um, the case of um, type 1 and possibly type 2, I think um, maybe this is um, made more difficult by the fact that there are uh, fundamental metabolic changes um, going on at the the level of, for example, the liver and its ability to balance um, blood sugar, its ability to balance gluconeogenesis. Um, so then how did you kind of experienced this um when you were learning uh about all of this and exercising and um did you learn to kind of watch out for certain signs where you would stop exercising or you would go slower um or how did you manage this this at the beginning
1: a lot of trial and error um okay Actually, I wrote my first book back in two thousand. That was it was called the, the diabetic athlete. Then after I went to a meeting um, from a now defunct group, but it was a group that was basically all type one athletes, people who were just active who had type one diabetes, and it was such a unique concept for to me at that point to to meet all these other people that were doing stuff and. I remember sitting around and talking to this one guy's like, Hey, you know, when I go play soccer, this is what I do. I, you know, I cut back on my, my mealtime insulin by this much. I, I eat this many extra carbs. And I, I said, wouldn't it be nice to know what to do for every different thing you wanted to, to try and. I mean, it's impossible to know all these things in advance. I mean, I know a lot for the activities I do, I know how to balance those out, but what if I want to try a new activity? I mean, where do I even start? How do I even understand what kind of response to expect? And that's what kind of led me to, to decide to um, get questionnaires filled out by people doing all these different activities and every time i've done it i've had hundreds of athletes who've given me their feedback on various activities and what they do and it makes different a difference on you know the intensity of the activity makes a big difference the duration of the activity it's a huge difference even the time of day that they do it um, has an impact on how their body responds and how they have to change their insulin dosing or their um their food intake but the general uh premise is that if you exercise first thing in the morning before you take any insulin chances are you're not going to drop as much because there are just a lot of hormones still floating around that were active there overnight to um keep your blood glucose somewhat stable like cortisol and growth hormone and things that are high first thing in the morning and until you you eat breakfast and take some insulin that that sort of persists i've, I've even actually solved this problem i've had people at type 2 go you know i actually in the morning before breakfast and my glucose goes up i mean why is that what can i do i'm like just eat first i mean like it's, yeah. it's really simple <laughs> all you do is break yeah. your fast it drops the levels of those hormones and then your body if it can release its own insulin it will release some insulin in response to eating if you if not you can take a tiny bit If you have type 1, take a tiny bit of insulin and then that solves that problem. When you go to exercise, Uh, you just don't want to overdo it because of that, you know, the dual action of of the 2 different mechanisms. Um, so it's the timing really makes a big difference. Um. If I've had, I've known people who do CrossFit and so they do it first thing in the morning, they actually have to take insulin before they go do CrossFit in the morning and not eat anything because otherwise their glucose goes sky high from the activity, both the intensity and the fact that they. They have all these hormones that are making them insulin resistant, making the liver release more glucose and they're low on insulin at that time of day. So the. A lot of studies have looked at doing exercise before breakfast or later in the day, the same exercise, the same amount of activity. I've even looked at it if you would type 2, I did a little study where we looked at before dinner, exercise and after dinner and did that make a difference? And yeah, it, it makes it a big difference. Um, you're always a lot more likely to drop when their insulin levels are higher, which is typically after a meal or later in the day when it's sort of the cumulative effect because you've been taking insulin for meals all day. and even though most of these rapid acting insulins, you know, last two or three hours, they have a, a tail and some of them last all the way out to eight hours.
0: So is this type you one?
1: Have, yeah. Well, any type or of type medicine. two or
0: both. Okay.
1: Yeah. Anybody who has to use insulin, the, the, the insulin kind of hangs around longer than you would expect it to. And so you're going to have a, a, more of a, a glucose lowering effect, even doing the same exact activity later in the day compared to, with earlier in the day. But, and we didn't know all these things before. I mean, there's been a, a real um increase in the amount of, of studies that have been done on diabetes and exercise, both types, um, let's say in the last 20 years, which it's been really encouraging to see all that. Now we have um these consensus statements that have come out about exercising in type one. There was a really big one in 2017. There have been things about um, you know, low-carb eating and and athletics in type 1 diabetes and what's the impact of of cutting back on your carbs and we I've actually been the chair or co-chair of uh, several position statements over the years the first one starting in 2010 with the uh, joint with American College of Sports Medicine American Diabetes Association that was on exercising and type 2 diabetes and then we we did that um actually just last year we updated it 2022 I did one for American Diabetes Association only in 2016 that covered all types of diabetes um, and exercise so we understand a lot more than we used to
0: sure so if people um go and look for people that have already gone down this road and done this they'll find a lot of information about tried and tested and so things like um you say the first thing in the morning uh this is um Is this what's called the dawn phenomenon when you have these um, uh, extra hormones that are keeping blood sugar higher, which you can perhaps comes about before somebody might develop uh, diabetes, one of those early signs. So
1: um, it's certainly associated with the dawn phenomenon, but not everybody that I know who takes insulin experiences it. It's interesting because there, there are some hormonal changes that happen when you've have long-standing diabetes of any type, and uh, a lot of the people with type 1 actually have a depressed glucagon response, and it probably is the body's response in, in that you don't have the normal balance of insulin and glucagon at the liver, and after a while, you've been overproducing glucagon, and then your body just says, oh, I'm going to just produce less, and uh, so a lot of people actually have a very blunted glucagon response, even in response to um, their blood glucose going too low. And so they rely on other hormones like um adrenaline and noradrenaline to help kick in to raise the glucose levels but uh, what it results in is a lot of people lose their awareness um, and their ability to really respond well to when they get hypoglycemic which can be really dangerous um especially after exercise there are a whole series of studies that looked at what happens when somebody has done exercise prior and then they get they get a low and how do they respond to it or what happens if they had a low previously and then they exercise you know they have a blunted response of the glucose raising hormones which of which there are five mm-hmm. and that can have a real impact on how well somebody is able to continue exercising and and just the risk of developing hypoglycemia not only during exercise but after exercise
0: okay yeah. these are
1: all important things that you need to know and there's there's a a big learning curve for each individual but you can certainly
0: um, use that yeah so um you gathered all of that that information those questionnaires together and that's specifically for well both type one and type twos that are um using insulin but then um can people find that information on your your website um diabetesmotion.com is that where you kind of collate all of this uh this information. Some of
1: it, some of it. I some mean, it. it took okay. me a whole book to put in all the the different activities and stuff. So I, there's no way I have all of that on my website. Sure. But, okay. Um, yeah, I've actually updated that book twice. I updated it in uh, the last time was in 2018, and it's called um, the Athlete's Guide to Diabetes. Uh, okay. It got more politically correct in its name. The second one was uh, <laughs> Diabetic Athlete's Handbook. And then they decided not to use diabetic as a noun or an adjective anymore. So
0: I see. Um, okay.
1: But it's funny because it did change a lot over the years. It changed in terms of what people were telling me on how they manage it and the tools that came along. For example, there were quite a few people the last time around when I updated my book that we're using uh, a what's called a a hybrid closed loop system where they have an insulin pump and they have a continuous glucose monitor of some sort and then they have a, a, a central hub like an algorithm that ties that those in together like the the insulin pump knows when it is told how much insulin to give you and your your cgm your glucose monitors is feeding data back and then the algorithm is saying oh you need more insulin or you need less insulin and so forth. Sure. Um it's not a perfect system by any means. And well it's there, um are, been, it's
0: getting closer and closer to yeah, how the body people, would respond.
1: Yeah a lot of people when they're telling me what do they do for exercise they'll just say oh I just set it I i aim yeah you know, I said at this level. So it'll it'll aim for that level of glucose. Um, I'm just trying to do that conversion from milligrams per deciliter to normal in my head right now.
0: Okay, well, so, both is fine. Both is fine. Um, yeah.
1: It usually it's between like five and 10 millimolar. It, it would be like, a, you know, a target range during exercise. And so some people will say, I, I set mine, let's just pick a number at, at seven. And and so they're trying to keep from getting hypoglycemic and, and it'll cut the insulin back for you. It's not as effective as cutting it back for yourself in a, in advance of starting exercise, just because it's still hanging around for a while. But when they would do that, then they couldn't tell me really what other types of adjustments they had to make. They just they just told their algorithm, keep me at this level. And so they've lost some of the fine tuning to be able to tell me, oh, yeah, I would cut my insulin back by this many units. above. they don't know because it's just kind of being done automatically. So I figured that there won't be a need to do the next edition because by then we'll have so many tools or maybe a cure. And so people won't need to worry about doing the fine tuning themselves. They'll have an algorithm that does it for them.
0: Yeah, well, maybe. But uh, it's still uh, interesting because uh, it's a a little window into how uh, incredible the the body is uh, when it's producing insulin in the pancreas to maintain or these homeostatic systems that respond to all of this different, uh, data coming in and it, it balances. Um, and it's only when things start to, um, go wrong, can we actually appreciate what, uh, how advanced this system is? Um, because when we try to step in and it's the same with any kind of, um, any kind of, um, uh, uh, illness or disease process even like if you're thinking about thyroids trying to balance the thyroid hormones and get the right level at the right time or um anything where we're trying to um second guess what was going to be best for the body it's very very difficult to to do so but go to of that so um people who are taking insulin there uh, as a general rule if they're if they're exercising before breakfast or first thing in the morning they're less likely to um To have a dip in the um in their blood sugars. Is that also true for like um obviously if we think about people who are pre-diabetic or type twos who are not taking insulin, um, people who are hyperinsulinemic or just people who are trying to stay metabolically healthy? Um, is that beneficial to be um exercising before you eat? We hear a lot about this kind of uh fasted exercise to get rid of the glycogen and um, Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, um.
1: <laughs> that's a good question and I don't have a definitive answer for you. I, I know what people want the answer to be. They want to be told that they must always exercise at this one time a day because that's the best time. I always say the best time of day to exercise is the time of day you make time to do it. Like if you can't do it in the morning, it's not like you're, you're going to have to say, Oh my gosh, my day is shot. I I'm not even going to try to exercise today. Cause I couldn't do it before breakfast. I mean, you fit it in whenever you could fit it in. I personally, I personally do not like pre breakfast exercise because what happens to me is that no matter what I do, my glucose goes up instead of stable or down. And then I, I, it makes me somewhat insulin resistant. So when those glucose raising hormones go up, it's the same thing as the dawn phenomenon or, you know, first thing in the morning, you just, you're very resistant because your body's trying to preserve any glucose that you have. So you don't use it all up. I mean, it's essential that you have some available at all times for your brain and your nervous system to work. Right. And it, so I don't like, doing it that time of day. Cause then I'm battling it for hours afterwards, trying to figure out how much insulin do I need to bring down this, this insulin resistance that resulted from me exercising before I ate and gave insulin this morning. I know other people who absolutely love it and they'll, they only exercise in the morning because then they don't have to worry about getting low and they don't respond quite the same way I do. Um, where they're just always battling it after that. So it, it's a very, Uh, individualized choice as to when you exercise and what works best
0: for you sure okay yeah um definitely individualized approach based on the person based on listening to your body and seeing what feels um what feels good i know sometimes i exercise first thing in the morning and it feels really good it gets me going and i feel uh much more mentally clear and i feel like it's a good thing other times, I'm just dragging my heels and I, it feels difficult. And I feel like I wish I would just uh, had something to, to eat first or, or done done it in a different way. So yeah. Um, so you
1: want to get to yeah. the second secret I didn't ever get to and that that okay. has to do with how you keep your insulin sensitivity high uh, at all times. And it's, it it's really all about your muscles. And If you think about um, where your body stores carbohydrates, you have a limited amount of carbohydrate that's ever available, but you have to maintain your glucose all the time, your blood glucose. Your body has alternate mechanisms to do that. It can use other fuels as the precursor to make new glucose. So you can make new glucose from protein. You can make new glucose from the backbone of fat. It doesn't have to just come from carbohydrate sources, but what you're, you're really trying to do is figure out what makes you more resistant. So what really happens is if you don't have anywhere for carbs that you eat to go into storage, then your body has to do something Either your glucose goes up or it has to get converted into body fat or something else happens. But you want to have the storage tank for carbohydrates. You want to have that as big as possible. I always call it my, my muscle glucose tank. So you figure your muscles are the the biggest place where you're going to put most of the glucose that comes into your body or even that gets created by your liver. And you want to keep the the muscle tank as big as possible and always partway empty. And the way you do that is with regular physical activity, because um, if you use up that muscle glycogen, which is that stored stored energy, um, then that whole period of time when you're restoring it, your insulin sensitivity is a lot higher. And, but you have to keep doing it regularly. And the effects of, of a bout of exercise may be anywhere from two hours to 72 hours. It really just depends on what you did and what your eating style is and other things, that how you refueled afterwards or didn't refuel. So I just always tell people, try to keep your muscle tank as big as possible, which you do with resistance training and try to keep your tank always partway empty so that your insulin sensitivity stays higher.
0: Sure. Well, from an evolutionary point of view, we're always moving around. We were were built to move um, always um, outside doing things. And so we would very rarely be sat in one place for more than two hours, really, apart from maybe sleeping at night. Um, So it's probably a very good uh, tip to like, even if somebody has to work a long time at a a desk or to have a, a fixed job to actually get up and move uh, even doing a few squats or doing um, some press ups uh, regularly just to, to break the day that keeps that um, keeps that process going. So um, yeah, that's a uh, so thinking about the muscles as a yes, as a sink. And when you eat, uh, it's going to be refilling with the stuff that you've eaten. And in that time, um, your, your metabolism is going to be uh, responding better because you've got somewhere for all of these um, resources to go and I guess that would be the same for anybody on whatever um, side of the spectrum they're on with regards to metabolic health um, so in that case exercise um, is is something for everybody it's going to have a beneficial effect for so does that have much to do with like the I've heard the idea that um, well it's not the idea it's a proven fact that, for example, pro athletes are going to have uh, high mitochondrial density in their muscles, they're just going to be able to remain very insulin sensitive, because they can uh, take a huge amount of uh, food or carbs from their diet and just put those straight into the muscles and not face problems with, um, uh, with mitochondrial issues. So how much is that to do with the mitochondria? And how much is that to do with glycogen? Or is it both of them working together?
1: But uh, you know i I haven't studied the the glucose metabolism that that much related to mitochondrial density, but my my first thought would be that most of the research I've looked at is showed it to be more related to glycogen replacement, and this is the other cat who just
0: showed Ah, okay, <laughs> <laughs> making the timely appearance in front of the webcam, <laughs> yeah. Sure. Okay. Yes. I think the idea, um, that I was looking at with that was that, um, if you're dealing with, um, mitochondrial dysfunction, if they're getting overloaded with, um, excess hypercalorific diets, then they become less effective. There gets an increase in oxidative stress. And then that insulin cascade starts to break down and there's some insulin resistance that comes from that. So even in that point, it's the, the, the glycogen can't be, it, 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 fails to become a successful energy tank because the insulin can't do its job. Um, so yeah, that, yes.
1: That's, that's somewhat true. There, there are lots of things that contribute to insulin resistance. It's not just one thing. There's a whole list right, of yeah. like 30 different things that can do that. <laughs> and so it's a matter of uh, when it comes to physical activity, you know, the things that are easy to see are that you have a reduction in the glycogen content in, in your muscle and your liver when you're exercising. And that's certainly gonna contribute. And most of the time the sensitivity stays high until the glycogen is replaced in full. Um, there are a lot of subcellular things that are tied into that, obviously. But, sure.
0: So what are uh, some of the big ones then? I mean, um... You talked about uh, these um, other hormones that keep glucose higher, like um, cortisol and uh, growth hormone and so on, then oxidative stress. Um, Maybe we could talk a bit about how that leads to inflammation and maybe uh, inflammation's effect on all of this. Because, um, yes, the the, the benefits of the anti-inflammatory benefits of exercise, how how does that tie into all of this?
1: Yeah, you know, the the inflammation is a is a big part of insulin resistance um and a lot of metabolic diseases are related to to that as well this um you know low level systemic inflammation that can occur for a variety of reasons it, it's interesting i, I <laughs> went to a, a seminar that uh, years ago from someone who came to eastern virginia medical school who was like a, from the nih and had this marvelous knowledge of fat cells and, and the turnover of fat cells, and also the uh, metabolic health, and um, it, it all came back to, interestingly, to to gut health um, and and the bacteria that reside in the gut and and how those can contribute to this low level inflammation that then leads to insulin resistance and, and heart disease and other metabolic diseases and there are a lot of things that are linked and one of the things that we know most about exercise is that it has amazing anti-inflammatory properties um it's like it's it's its own antioxidant (laughs) so you don't have to take all these antioxidants all you need to do is exercise regularly and you're going to help control this low level inflammation that then leads to insulin resistance and and heart disease and high blood pressure and all these other problems so um i i think a lot of it in, in relates not back just to exercise but also to diet um diet is so important in terms of whether you end up with a leaky gut and there's some some thought process too that the trigger for type one might not be as environmental as as it is related to diet where you end up with uh, a leaky gut and pro-inflammatory compounds that get released in and kind of trigger it internally in your body so there's a lot of research that's going on and all yeah it's
0: interesting and um in the research i was reading they refer to it also as the like when people are eating a refined diet they refer to it as the fast food fever where there's actually um, a markedly higher Uh, immune response to junk food diets um so there's a lot more activity in the gut um when people are eating refined foods and not eating whole foods and so yeah it all ties together um then leaky gut and then you've got um undigested proteins and things getting into the um to the to the systemic circulation and then um you know potential immune more systemic immune problems going on so okay yeah that's um that's interesting so um yes um would it be fair to say then that when you're exercising there's a kind of um inflammatory response that happens and then it's how how your body responds to it it's almost like a hormetic response where you have this drawn out anti-inflammatory response that lasts for for hours afterwards
1: yeah so basically you do create uh reactive oxygen species when you're exercising and because you do that and you do it regularly your body becomes better at squelching those those um, free radical type things that get produced whenever you use oxygen and so exercise by itself becomes enhances your ability to reduce inflammation um, I think it's really a critical thing, but yeah, obviously you can't do everything with exercise. I've known plenty of people who have our regular exercises or maybe even over exercises in some cases, marathoners and so forth, but they, if they don't manage their diet as well, they also can still develop some of these metabolic problems. So, um,
0: sure. Yeah. Yes. And of course, um, everything else to do with lifestyle that's there are the studies showing that, uh, People's blood work tends to, to um, go pretty quickly out of line when they are not getting enough sleep, for example. Um, uh, I remember seeing those studies where uh, just a, a few days of poor sleep can have a really serious impact on um, uh, blood sugar and blood lipids and things. So, um, yeah, so it's um, taking a, a systemic approach, but for sure. How you've described exercise is it's a kind of um <clears throat> it it does so many different things on so many different levels and um clearly we were born to move so it's um something that um yeah we it's need to do more of to... because
1: for a while they were studying whether they would they could give people um pills Um like a medication or something that would have the impact of being physically active like metabolically and what they found is they can target one thing at a time like with a pill maybe it could target your you know release of a certain hormone or something that that would cause insulin resistance and it can prevent that but what you don't get is that systemic wide benefit the increase in the vascular function and the blood flow and um, you know, changes in skin in response to heating and all, all the things that go on all at once when you're exercising, you just can't replicate that in a pill. Um, but I have seen plenty of people t- talking about various things where they did actually try to study if they could just give people this exercise pill. <laughs> and then yes, I remember when um,
0: a while ago there was a, yes, this this kind of conversation around metformin its uh, effects on ampk and then saying uh, well it's just like exercise in a pill type of thing but like you say it's it's almost like one uh, instrument out of a whole orchestra it's like you're not <laughs> it, it has is. such a wide and it's also um it's because we're not trying to um in, we're trying to interfere on a on a molecular single single target level um yes we're just not getting the wide uh, the wide benefits that we would so um, so having said that, one of the, um, um, one of the things which uh, people have difficulty is, is actually being consistent. So we've talked quite a bit about the, the mechanisms and the benefits and um, its capacity to get blood sugar into the cells and uh, anti-inflammatory effects, antioxidant effects, um, blood flow effects. Um, yes. Um, but um, we also live what in a time... You yeah, can't
1: be active someday. Yeah, what, what yes, we live know? in a time where it favors
0: <laughs> sedentary lifestyle, and uh, work is always about most uh, for, for many people in front of the computer. How do you make it sustainable? And what have you found in your experience with people that really gets them to keep it up, do it regularly, and above all, enjoy it?
1: I think what you'd have to do is start thinking about it differently. Like if you miss your going to your gym today. For some reason, you just don't give up. What you do is you try to work in little bits of exercise all during the day. I mean, maybe on your, your break at work, you stand up and you do calisthenics next to your desk, or you go up and down the staircase a few times, or you go take a, a walk for 15 minutes and clear your head at work. You just find some ways to to be active that um, you know really allow you to partake in small bits, little exercise bites and, um, and not worry so much about just the only if the only way you can do it is all at once.
0: Sure. Okay, so try to make it a, a regular part of your your day. So like, instead of saying, Okay, I need to go and do this at this time, then also, if you can have a baseline of like, walking to work, this was going to be um...
1: Yeah. So then you uh, just try or, to get as many steps in during the day as you can, or even just stand up more. If you can't get your normal workouts in, try to do sure. something that accumulates to some amount of activity during the day.
0: Sure. Yeah. And also to make it fun as well, because I think, um, we're very much, um, these days focused on work and, uh, the idea of reaching a goal and being, um, it's being a bit of an obligation to do things, uh, but we sometimes forget that if if we can add the joy back into exercising and have it something that we really look forward to, then it's all about we that it's no effort at all because we go and we enjoy the moment. or we enjoy perhaps playing sport with other people or just getting out outside in nature. And so, yes, I definitely think we're missing Uh, I'm just thinking of people that kind of go and slug it out at the gym and they kind of punish themselves if they can't go. And I um... I
1: always think of, uh, maybe doing hard and easy days. So some days you just, you don't feel as up to it. You just don't, you know, trick yourself, say, okay, I'm only going to do 15 minutes. I won't make myself do 30. And then when you get to 15 minutes, if you're feeling better, do 30, but if you're not allow yourself to stop that day, so that it's not like you're punishing yourself with this. You think of it as a, you know, it's a lifelong thing. It's not like you've got a goal and you got a certain thing you have to you know, accomplish today um, versus a month from now. You just, you just kind of think of it as some, a part of your lifestyle. And uh, you can give yourself a break some days and you can do a little less or you can work a little less hard or you can do a different activity and everything counts. So, you know, you want to do yoga today instead of running, do go for it. I mean, it all has mental health benefits, too. So,
0: Sure. okay, yes. And that's uh, that's also I mean, part of these these different effects. I mean, the effect on mental health is huge as well. I mean, there are, of course, those studies which show clearly that people can treat not only diabetes, um, or at least manage it much more effectively, but also things like depression with um, lots of exercise, lots of running. It's, um, uh, and that obviously ties into the to the idea from before of it being um, uh, the inflammatory issues, um, be able to modulate inflammation, reduce neuroinflammation and so on. So um, yeah, okay. Great, that's been uh, really interesting. Um, so um, um, there was something else I wanted to ask you before we before we close. Um, it was about the different types of exercise. Yes, I mean, if we're changing from different types of exercise, is there any benefit to that um, from your work? Um, switching from, for example, um, card between cardio and resistance training, or Uh, flexibility training or um, or is is there any actually any metabolic benefit to that rather than just doing the same type of exercise every day
1: absolutely in fact you should be doing all those types you listed and balance training if you're over the age of 40 but i i think it's fine if you don't do all of them every day i think what you can do is you know like say a week at a time you try to get in a couple of days where you do some resistance work of some sort, even if it's not gym-related, but you just do activities using your own body weight as resistance. Which there are plenty of things that have come up since COVID, where you know, at home-based types of training that you can look online and find what to do. I think the the cardio exercise doesn't necessarily have the impact on sustaining the high level of of insulin sensitivity for as long particularly if it's just like walking or you know so that has to be done fairly regularly and i would just advise people not to take more than two days off um in a row like you could if you exercise monday wednesday friday that's fine you can take saturday and sunday off but don't take monday off again and you know space it out and then just Try to do different activities on different days. It's it's a lot better in terms to do that kind of cross training in terms of injury prevention and and motivationally, it works better Um, to not do the same thing every day. Now, if you like it, you're a creature of habit and you love to walk and you just do that every day, that's fine. But then you're going to have to find some other way to add in some resistance training because that's going to be really critical for maintaining your muscle mass as you age.
0: Sure. Okay. Great, so we've got some really useful things for people to take away there. Um, uh, keep it fun, uh, diversity of different um, exercise. Uh, don't be too hard on yourself, but um, remain constant if you can. Um, yes, m- not more than two days uh, without doing something and try to make uh, movements, try to make exercise a-, a regular part of your life, either by perhaps um uh finding ways to add walking into your lifestyle and then um yes and then the addition of things like um uh balancing ex- uh, exercise and so on for, as as you get older so um and also i think it's really interesting that we got into some of the mechanisms as well to understand why these things are um are so beneficial so um yes where can people find more about what you're up to um where would you like to direct people to to find out more about your work
1: uh most of the stuff that i've done i actually put on my own website which is just my name sherry uh and but if it, they're looking for information on what to do and that i would send them back to my other website which is diabetesmotion.com.
0: sure okay and am i right in thinking you've also got um uh, an academy uh set up where um there are some um resources available for um for uh, coaches and for um health practitioners and and that sort of thing
1: that is correct and that's do- called diabetes motion academy and it's just dmacademy.com for the website I-, I don't sell my own courses but i have made a lot for professional organizations and people can get credit for doing a lot of the coursework
0: okay great okay well thank you so much um for sharing your time with uh with me today sherry it's been really interesting um and thank you for it's it's inspirational to hear about somebody who has um experienced something found uh, a difficulty in their life and then overcome it uh become an expert in it and then is now sharing that information uh, uh with other people to help them so um so thank you very much for that um yes and um yes we'll be in touch again soon it would be nice to to catch up again and circle around and i'm sure there's lots of things which we didn't get into today which uh yes which will um which we can get into another time so thank you
1: definitely glad to help
0: okay thanks very much So that's about all for today. Uh, I hope you found that useful and interesting. Um, If you like what you heard, uh, be sure to go and check out uh, Sherry's website and also our website at insulin360.com. Thanks and have a great day.